Welcome to Trending in Education. Really happy to have Brian Alexander back uh, by both popular demand and perhaps unfortunate circumstance. Brian was, uh, was a wonderful guest for us. He's a futurist, looks at higher education. We talked about his book, Academia Next, uh, about a month ago, which has gotten really great uptake. And Brian's a great resource for folks who want to understand what's, what's coming, particularly in higher education, but just also more broadly uh, in the world around us. And unfortunately, one of the things that is hitting, uh, hitting us all in many different ways is the coronavirus, also known as uh, COVID-19. And Brian has become a really critical resource for folks who want to understand what's emerging, what's happening there. So, so Brian, welcome back to Trending in Education. Well, thank you, Mike. It's great to be back. I really enjoyed our last talk, and I'm glad to be here now. Yeah, and you know, there's the the old the, the curse. You know, living in interesting times. It does appear as though we are living in interesting times. The this virus is a serious thing. It does look like it is global in its reach and its impact is broad. You know, hitting closest to home. We're I'm not in Austin this week. I am at home in Brooklyn because uh, South by Southwest was canceled. You've been making you've been making the the news and the media lately in terms of how you're tracking the impact to higher education of this virus. I'd love to to hear a little bit from you about what you've been doing, what you're seeing, and how you've become really a critical curator of information for folks who who want to understand what's happening uh, as far as the coronavirus and its impact on higher ed. Well, sure, um, it's a great question. I was. To back up a little bit, people in the futures community have long been interested in viruses and disease, biological disasters. These are things that we've been planning on, simulating gaming for a long, long time. And we could talk about some of those if you'd like. So when COVID-19 started to burst out in January, I started tracking it carefully. And uh, I gradually built up a simple blog post of just what I thought were the best resources for following the virus. And this became very popular. It now gets thousands of hits a day. People really like it. So I've just got you know a, a few brilliant Twitter people to follow there, uh, a few open access scholarly journals that have material that we can use, some generally available information and that kind of thing, along with some dashboards. And so this is pretty useful. And then I started scoping out how this could hit higher education. Ironically, uh, my book, Academia Next, uh, in 2019, when I gave it to the publisher, I have two passages where I talk about the possible impact of a plague on higher education. And so, you know, I'm sad that those are ones that came true. Um, but, but, you know, I was following this closely and thinking about it and then started tracking how this is impacting higher ed. And it, Chronicle Higher Ed was doing this on a case-by-case basis. Uh, Inside Higher Ed was doing this along with Roundups. And I thought, well, let's just have a spreadsheet where we track all the different institutional responses. Some of these schools are closing or canceling classes. Some of them are moving everything online. So I just went to Google Apps, set up a Google spreadsheet, quickly sketched out a few columns and said, okay, friends, you know, put on Twitter. What do you think? What are we missing? And it started off with about uh, five or six, starting when University of Washington, Seattle, canceled mm-hmm. classes and went online. And then it just grew uh, when Stanford canceled classes and then more and more schools around Seattle. And then it's been growing ever since. And by growing, I mean, not just that the stories are growing as more and more campuses are considering closing and shunting everything online, but that more and more people have been adding data to it. It's, it's an open document. So people mm. have been adding 
individual stories, they've been adding more information. And then a few great people from Ithaca SNR added columns. They uh, plugged it into the IPEDS database so that now we have columns, not just for the, the name of the university and what it's doing, but also for its population, its nature, its latitude and longitude. So we generated uh, maps as a result. It's undergraduate headcount and graduate headcount. So now we have a running total of how many students are impacted. And it's just been growing like mad. Inside of Higher Ed started pointing to it. NPR pointed to it, interviewed me about it. Times of London Education interviewed me about it. A few others. It's it's just really been uh, very rich and very exciting to see. Yeah, I, th yeah. I think it went too far. A few times we had problems loading it, and I think we may have exceeded Google Apps's uh, cloud provisioning for it. Right. It's pretty solid now. So yeah. those, are the, those are the two things, uh, the spreadsheet and the blog post have been getting a lot of attention. And yeah. it's a kind of classic example of light web 2.0 technology being used for collaborative information sharing. Yeah. And if, just for our listeners, if they do want to track that stuff down, where, where, where do they find the blog? Where do they find the, the spreadsheet? Well, if you just go to uh, my blog, brianalexander.org, uh, I've got a little post pinned to the top, which has links to both of those. Okay. Awesome. And on our previous conversation, we started talking about science fiction maybe later than I wanted. So I made a memo to myself to make sure I brought up science fiction early enough because you lit up and, and I think I also lit up in response to <laughs> what you were putting out there. Science fiction, much like futurists, and we talked about how they're, they're interrelated, has explored the idea of plagues and like biological disasters and, and the like. I'd love to get your perspective on what you've encountered within science fiction and how you can learn from some of these examples on the one hand, and then any uh, recommendations for folks who want to maybe enjoy a little bit of edutainment while, while leaning into some of the paranoia that is, uh, is upon us. Uh, <laughs> any thoughts on, on either of those ideas? Sure. Let's, let's toss some examples back and forth. Do you want me to go back in time or do you want me to pick recent examples? Maybe going back in time and then, and then we can hop around from there. Okay, so people often call Mary Shelley the, the grandmother of science fiction because of Frankenstein, mm -hmm. which they should. It's a great book. It's not the first one, but it's, it's definitely a, a lodestar, and it's pretty amazing. Well, late in her career, she wrote a novel called The Last Man, mm -hmm. which is about a plague that wipes out the human race. Uh, it's a much longer book. It's uh, very, very, very detailed, um, and it starts off as basically her, I think, the author's way of processing different people that she lost in life, including mm. her husband, including Byron, including her father. Yeah. Uh, and then about a third of the way into the book, a plague breaks out in Constantinople, and it just spreads until it exterminates the human race. I mean, it's mm. an epic Gothic book. And it's not as well known, but during the 80s, when the AIDS crisis broke out, it became uh, pretty popular. Mm. A century later, uh, the great, great, uh, underappreciated Olaf Stapledon has this mind-blowing book called Last and First Men, which is the, one of the first great future histories where it looks at the human race over the next several million years. And several times he wipes out the human race by, by plague. Right. Um, so I, I think just before Stapledon, H.G. Wells toyed with the plagues more often than not. Uh, the more of the worlds, the Martians come, they bring their own diseases, and they, of course, fell by disease. Right. So I, I think there's a long history of that. Yeah, and I think you were helping me formulate my thinking around this when we talked last, but, but science fiction is actually a really critical tool in terms of our 
mental preparedness and our imaginative ability in in much the way that being a you know being future a futurist someone who's thinking about what's emerging requires similar skills i'd love to hear more of your thinking around what can be learned from the science fiction what can be learned from you know being imaginative about what might happen you know you talked about possible yeah, yeah. futures rather than a yeah. single one can you take a step back and maybe just reflect a little bit on that and then i'd love to drill in a little further into sure. the coronavirus itself Sure, and I want to give a couple of more examples of, uh, of science fiction. And, and yeah, great. Ways. But I, I think one of the things it does is it, it gives us the power to imagine ourselves in a different setting, either explicitly. I mean, a lot of futures work works that way. It says, hey, here's a scenario, and you can imagine yourself in the future, in the year 2050, if X and Y happen. And science fiction does that implicitly, where you see characters go through journeys and you get to follow them. And so that's that can teach you about yourself that can also give you insight into how humans respond. So, I mean, to the extent that uh, artists are giving you depictions of humanity, you get to imagine uh, ways in which humans can respond to disease uh, mm -hmm. through science, through chaos, through religion, and so on. And so I, I think these are very, very powerful. When it comes to the future side, we often do exercises, simulations, or games, and that gives us a good way to test out our responses to find flaws and uh, cracks in our plans. And so that's extremely useful. In fact, I have a blog post pointing to uh, a few different exercises people have done. There was one called uh, Global 203 that took a look at uh, a plague that came out of Brazil and uh, chewed up most of the, uh, the world. There's a game from the CDC, which lets it teaches you how to hunt down uh, viral outbreaks, which is mm. pretty clever. It's not easy. It's a, it's a tough little game. Uh, so I, I think those give us the extra ability to test for skills and to see how things unfold uh, you know, in the way that good role playing can. Yep. To get a little bit more to the, to the present, I just want to put in a plug for an underrated movie, a Steven Soderbergh movie called Contagion. Have you seen mm -hmm. that? I have, yep. Oh, yes. That's a, that's a chilly, chilly film. It, mm. It's one of those hard science films that feels almost like a documentary. Um, yeah. And it's it's pretty uncanny to watch now. I, I recently rewatched it and uh, live tweeted the experience, and it was it was very unsettling. I mean, there there are some great high points. I'm not a fan of Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop, so I'm I'm always glad to see her get killed off really early. And there's a scene where her brain gets sawed out, and I thought this is kind of the ultimate moment of celebrity culture. But um, <laughs> but one of the things that it that's interesting in the, in the film is that the CDC is clearly the heroic force. They're the guiding lights. And in, in our world, in our timeline, if you will, the CDC has fumbled things badly. And yeah. They've fumbled the testing very, very badly. And it's possible that people will suffer and die as a result. Yeah. I, I don't know to what extent that's because of uh, the Trump administration's policies and to what extent the rot comes from further in. But it's, it's right. very, very upsetting. Yeah, it is a concern just generally around the hollowing out of our institutions that the CDC is one of them that does appear to be maybe thinner than it had been historically. It does remind me a little bit of uh, the response to Katrina by FEMA uh, as well, mm -hmm. where like the institutions of government were not really equipped um, to respond. And some of what you're talking about around good scenario-based thinking, good simulations, good wargaming, is actually a best practice used by government agencies that are involved in emergency response. Yeah. Uh, it just it just feels as though they we missed, by we I mean the CDC and the broader response 
in the U.S. And it does seem like a lot has been left at a local level, whether that's mayors, the mayor of Austin canceling South by Southwest as mm-hmm. an example. Mm-hmm. And then I imagine, you know, moving more into the higher ed space, a lot of this is being left to university presidents and, and provosts and administrations to, to sort of make these decisions. Are there any trends you're noticing as you're tracking the evolution of the policies that are being established for, for many of these universities? Are, are, are the decisions being made by similar people? Is there a trend in terms of which types of academic institutions are deciding to cancel class? Which, which of them can cancel and go online? Uh, which of them are, are powering forward? Yeah, any thoughts on any of that? Well, just to give you some uh, perspective, I just now checked the database and we have, let's see, closer to 72 campuses listed and the total number of students impacted is over 1 million. Wow. So a couple of the trends. Uh, One is that many of these institutions had emergency planning put in place in the past, either because of uh, Katrina or because of September 11th or Mm -hmm. because of SARS. And so they had people that were in position. They had committees ready to stand up, which is great, but they had to update all of these plans. I haven't heard from any of them that said they didn't have to update them. Mm -hmm. So for example, a lot of them had uh, instructional continuity plans that were based more or less in the learning management system. Uh, They hadn't really put in a a video option. So Mm -hmm. they had to quickly add video and talk about that, which is important and very interesting. I think another trend is some of them were located or closely located by clusters. So you have campuses cl- uh, closing in the New York area and in the uh, Seattle area, uh, as well as uh, parts of California where we have clusters of uh, COVID-19 infections and some deaths. And then you have others across the country which are not or you know, just very small groups. So I, I think those are forward-looking. They are mm-hmm. assuming the likelihood that their area will either have community infection or that they will have some member of their community will connect with someone who has traveled to Italy, Iran, South Korea, China, and so on, and uh, back and forth. So I I think this is a prudent measure. I think in part campuses are doing it because they honestly don't want their communities to get hurt. Right. Uh, I think they're also worried about becoming a disease vector. Right. If if you think about a, a college with, say, traditional age undergrads, you know, a bunch of 18 to 22 year olds, those aren't, those aren't the people who suffer from COVID. It's most mm-hmm. people in their 70s on up. Well, right. then you get this interesting thing of, well, they become vectors. They go home to their parents, their grandparents, and so on. Right. Uh, and I think also they don't want to get sued. Uh, right. This is America. We believe in suing people all the time. So, so I think for all these good reasons, they decide to uh, shift online and either close campuses down or just close the physical face-to-face classes down. I heard one commentator observe that dormitories were like the cruise ships of campuses. <laughs> In a sense, that's true. Nice, yeah. confined place. You know, get all the food, air circulating, people close to each other. Yeah. Um, so that they're moving online. And how long that lasts, it, it really depends, Mike. I mean, it's possible that we could blow through this infection in the United States in a couple of months. I mean, this is how long it took China, maybe a month and a half of hard work, maybe two months of that. And so maybe, maybe we'll get that and then it'll fade away and maybe it'll come back in uh, flu season in November, right. December. And we'll talk about it just another part of the flu. Maybe it gets its own separate vaccine. Right. Um, or so in that case, come say May 1st, then 
we reopened campuses and we plan on ever going back in August and September to face-to-face -face classes. Or it's possible that COVID-19 is a, a meaner bastard than that and, and it persists. And it may be that come July and August, we have to think about starting the fall semester online, depending on where you are. I mean, it may right. be that we that parts of the country never never really become COVID carriers, save the Midwest, and it could be that parts of it really are intense. And but in which case, we could be seeing a permanent shift of academia and American life online. I mean, yeah. For, let's just say hypothetically, New York becomes a long-time COVID sufferer. Do we then thin out the population in terms of uh, social distancing? Do people right. just shop less and, and all kinds of enterprises either fail or they move online and online businesses really, really grow. Mm -hmm. you know, it's great news for podcasting. Yeah. Well, and, and online uh, course management, online program management. I think those are the two, two, yes. two of the winners, I would think, like the ability to rapidly move folks to digital. But at the same time, this is where maybe a different angle of science fiction is interesting too, is that we've already seen trends that are driving towards uh, social isolation and there's a loneliness epidemic among, amongst our, our teens. Folks are, are staying in their homes more. Amazon is making it easier to stay in their homes. So like, what does that mean for human interaction, human well-being? One of the interesting points that I've been trying to make too is one of the safest places to be is outside just not in proximity to to others so you know i've been taking more uh, long walks in the in prospect park here as mm. a as just a a way to cleanse my mind but it is it was reassuring it for me to hear that outdoors is actually safer than indoors and indoors gets dangerous particularly around the ventilation so there is an element of it's good to go outside but I think there is a concern that I have, at least, that face-to-face -face is at risk. You know, we've, I've seen you post about this, I think, similarly, that the whole model of conferences is at risk. It may have been at risk already for the, the economics of it. It's expensive to fly everybody to, to a conference to, to sort of drive the, the level of face-to-face -face engagement and, and sort of community spirit that you get in those events. What are your thoughts on that? Like, what do you think will happen as uh, you know, maybe social isolation and loneliness epidemic aside, what about things like conferences and other gathering points that are big economic drivers to, to many cities and organizers and the like? Any thoughts on the potential impact there? You know, it, it is sort of an adjacency yeah. to higher ed, which I know you have a lot of uh, affinity for. No, it's a, it's a great question. And all kinds of businesses are tied into that, you know, hospitality, uh, tourism. Mm -hmm. I mean, again, it depends on which way the outbreak goes. I mean, if, if it fades into another iteration of the flu, then I think we'll see some damage. Um, we're already seeing it right now. You think about South by Southwest being canceled in uh, yep. Boston. And then that, then that fades. It comes, or, or the, the uh, big conferences, the big tourist draws come back. And then maybe, you know, flu season, but there's, that's already something we priced in. So it may be that this is a short-term thing, at least in the U.S. Otherwise, if it actually persists, if it really claws its way into our, into our immune system, then it may be that we have smaller conferences and we move more and more online, mm -hmm. which I, I think in some ways our society is really primed to do. Yep. Uh, we have lots of technology for it. It's unevenly distributed, which is a problem. Not a big problem, but we, we can do this. We have enterprises like 
Netflix and Amazon already in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have to think about how to do delivery. Uh, I saw from China and Wuhan, there was people who would um, deliver without face-to-face contact. So they go up to your door, leave the package, step back, and then, then the person would come in and get it. Uh, and they had to have little you know, protocols for this. It may be that we just get more and more used to what you and I are doing right now, having conversations yep. over audio and video. Mm-hmm. Uh, that works. But again, I come back to the movie Contagion. There's a, a quiet soap opera-ish subplot involving the, uh, a teenage girl who is uh, in love with her boyfriend, but they can't see each other because she's under quarantine. And uh, they have lots of ways they try and stay in touch, you know, looking at each other through windows and lots of texting. And the, the happy ending is they eventually get to you know hug and be together physically. Yeah. Um, but you know it, it it's it's possible that that we won't go that far, but that we just have less and less face to face experience. Again, science fiction has prepared us for this. You can think of tons and tons of of stories, everything from Ian e. Foster's classic The Machine Stops, which is from like 1920. Uh, mm. You can think even about the dystopia Wally. Uh, where those people are physically co-located, but they do nothing with each other right. face-to-face. So it's it's something to think about. The outdoors is uh, is a great alternative, except, you know, you think about how more Americans than ever uh, live in cities and suburbs. Yeah. So we have less access to that. But also think about how many, how many populations can't take advantage of that. People who have all kinds of physical disabilities or mental sure. disabilities. So it, it may be that, that we have a rebirth in the great outdoors, but just for people who can do it. You know, the readers yeah. of Outside Magazine, for example. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so any thoughts on the likelihood of the different scenarios you're, you're talking about? Because what I've heard, you know, as the flu is a coronavirus, so is the, you know, strains of the common cold are also strains of the, the coronavirus. COVID-19 is a new strain. Typically, these types of viruses, as I understand it, are seasonal in that they tend to spike in the winter months when folks are indoors more, ventilation is is tougher. So if it follows the pattern of its cousin, the flu, we would expect us to be towards the tail end of the traditional season when it would be more prevalent. Are you seeing anything in terms of the macro trends? I'm hearing some some hopeful signs out of Asia, where which was hit hardest first, that some of the mitigation has been successful. Also, maybe there is some seasonality that's driving that. So what are you, what are, what are the tea leaves telling you in terms of your spreadsheet and the likelihood of things increasing, decreasing? You know, I've also heard, you know, May as maybe a, a time by which we might be starting to see the light of day in the U.S., but, but any sense of, of timing uh, from you, from what you've seen so far? Well, let me, let me grab some data. We're looking at about 115,000 infections worldwide mm-hmm. that, that are recorded. And we're looking at a little over 4,000 deaths. It's hard to go from this data because we're, some of it's problematic. You look at, for example, China, and there's lots and lots of discussion about are they undercounting infections? Are they undercounting deaths for political reasons? I mean, it's embarrassing mm-hmm. in all kinds of ways. You look at the U.S. and the fact that we haven't tested anybody until just now. And now the number of tests administered is something like 8,000. I mean, it's possible that we've had the coronavirus circulating through parts of the country for weeks, if not mm-hmm. months. 
uh, without anybody real. And the other thing is, it's you have to test for it, and it can be disguised as something else. I mean, it looks like the flu. So if someone dies of the flu, you find it unremarkable. But also, right. its its main prey, elderly people with pre-existing conditions, uh, it could also ride alongside pneumonia uh, mm-hmm. or COPD. And it may be that uh, people didn't know how to diagnose it in different settings. So it's possible that we have a lot more infections, not to mention some totalitarian states or some authoritarian states that so far report zero infections that I find that hard to believe, or Kazakhstan, for example, or Turkey. Yeah. But let, let's just take those numbers for now. Let's just say there's 150,000. And let's say that grew over a uh, three-month period. Well, if it takes three months more to double that, you know, we're looking at uh, the end of June to have, say, 300,000. And then three month, three more months to double that, and all right, it's beginning to get sizable. Um, that's a pretty slow curve of growth and pretty steady. And we also have a lot of examples of public health really going to bat about this. You think about Italy, which just quarantined the entire country. I've heard, yeah. Or you think about uh, China's huge, huge steps in uh, Hubei province. Or you think about how aggressively Korea is, has, uh, uh, has tested the population. I mean, as, as a card-carrying American, I feel a little embarrassed that it was Korea that invented drive-through testing, not us. Uh, you know, but it may just be that it's not that virulent, that it's not that devastating, and that we may look back on our present and say, maybe we overreacted a little bit, but it was in a good, a good direction. And if we hadn't done this, if a Xi in China hadn't done what he did, um, yep. This, this may have gone truly berserk. I mean, the great fear that is in the back of every disease specialist's mind uh, is the great influenza of 1918. Right. That's, that's the apocalypse. That's the what Listeners, if you haven't studied this, I, I please recommend. It's, it's one of the most horrific things you can read or learn about. Uh, it estimates vary that it may have killed up to 3% of the human race. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, and it came, it started in Europe. Uh, it didn't start in Spain. Uh, it was just called the Spanish flu because it came at the end of World War One as a kind of a grim joke by history. Ah, you think you have it bad now? Well, we'll do this. Uh, it's called the Spanish flu because Spain was the uh, only neutral country in Europe. And uh, no one was allowed in the press to talk about uh, any of their own countries. So they you know, nicknamed the Spanish flu. But it just gutted troops. I mean, it's one yeah. of the reasons why Germany collapsed in the end of 1918. Interesting. Uh, you can write epic stories about that. And that's, that's, I mean, you can find horrible, sad stories about doctors who just give up because nothing they do works and people just die piled up like cordwood. I mean, right. that's, that's the thing that, that's the nightmare scenario that we all have. I don't think uh, COVID-19 is like that, but there are ways it could go wild. Uh, it could mutate. I mean, it does mutate, viruses mutate. It could mutate into something really virulent. Uh, it may be that uh, we don't generate a good vaccine for it, or it's a weak vaccine. Uh, it may also be that we screw up public health already. Have you heard stories of people breaking quarantine? Yeah, a bit. Well, there was some jerk in Dartmouth, New Hampshire, who uh, was under quarantine, then he went across state lines to Vermont to a house party. There was some complete arrogant fool in Missouri who was quarantined, and uh, he went to a school dance. You know, or congressman from Florida who was supposed to be quarantined and yep. went to Air Force One. I heard. Yeah. I mean, it's it's possible that we'll just screw up, and these kind of mm-hmm. things will keep happening. 
But to, to their credit, both the Biden and the Sanders campaigns tonight just suspended their big rallies in Cleveland. Yeah. And initially, I thought, oh, it's because of Cleveland. No, it's it's they don't want to be in such crowds. I mean, think we have three politicians running for president, and they're all in their seventies. They're all men. Uh, men tend to be more vulnerable. So, I, I it'd be interesting if if the presidential campaigns ratcheted back to something like the eighteen hundreds when uh, presidents it was deemed unseemly to be campaigning too hard. So people would right. just stay home and hope their reputations carried them. And right, right. I mean, that. yeah, not to mention voter turnout, you know, like trying to get everybody out to vote now that oh. even today they were, you know, Washington is one of the, one of the primary states today. And we're recording this on, on Tuesday and that's a hotspot for the virus. So like, how do you think about managing a polling place when this virus is out there, we don't have online voting, you know, like all of these, all of these things seem to indicate we need to have online alternatives or ways to do stuff digitally that is, to your point, I think is, is within the realm of our technical capability, but it requires significant behavioral change and it requires us letting go of things that we truly value. And that's the other maybe last area that I, w- I was curious about your perspective on is the the psychological impact of this global crisis and the opportunity for it to affect behavioral change in maybe adverse ways to, to you know yeah, to yeah. the to, like it does feel like even if we successfully contain this the ways in which we behave the ways in which we interact as humans like some of the most human aspects of our life experience will likely be impacted by this, both because of its global nature, but also because of the the echo chamber of social media and mm-hmm. the ways in which, you know, we are generally a risk averse species where particularly nowadays, there is some risk. It reminds me of, uh, you know, after the shoe bomber, I still hold that guy accountable <laughs> for, for all the inconvenience he's caused me. But uh, do you have any thoughts about the the yeah. psychological impact and, and, and sort of how to assess that. I know you've been a little more hands-on just due to the criticality of the crisis management, but I do think the broader psychological impact is profound. We, we have a lot of options in a lot of ways this could go. I mean, you think about what we know from history and that people can sometimes react in ways they can become very irrational in the sense that they can really cling to behaviors, beliefs, institutions that are not of science. So mm-hmm. you know, people become uh, more religious or, or religiosity becomes uh, more exaggerated or more imaginative. You can think about the spread of cults or cult beliefs. So today we would say new religious movements. So you know, what happens when you have a charismatic preacher who has a solution to the plague and carries this around? I mean, that's, so that's one thing I've been looking for. An offshoot of that is an embrace of so-called alter- alternative medicine. So I've been I've been watching that carefully. I've only seen one instance where some um, evangelical fellow was hawking a kind of silver colloid solution, um, and there was a Business Insider had an article to some folks on YouTube who were actually medical professionals. I mean, I think they were like home health aides or or, or nurses, but they were pushing some kind of vitamin injection. But beyond that, we haven't we haven't seen much. So I'm looking for that. I mean, it'll be something you know, uh, some herbal thing you know, that or or Gwyneth Paltrow will give us some kind of you know jade rock that we press to our foreheads and yeah. COVID is gone. So I, I'm I'm watching for that, but also religious belief and and how that can lead 
that can give people a great deal of comfort. It can give people a lot of psychological balm, but it can also give us greater causes for social anxiety. Yes. And, and just like, we've seen some of this. I've read reports of uh, a few different Chinatowns in the U.S. where business dropped in February. So before mm-hmm. a COVID outbreak in the U.S., people just didn't want to go to Chinatown, which is stupid. Uh, in, right. in my own community, I, I actually led a campaign to train people to buy more Chinese food, which worked. Mm-hmm. But you, you wonder you know, what other kinds of divisions will happen. I mean, so far, there hasn't been a wave of anti-Italian feeling. Uh, right. which, which is good, but you know, you can imagine this turning in different ways. Uh, I found very few people in the U.S. wanting to talk about Iran, uh, mm-hmm. which has so far really, really hashed its, uh, yes. its response badly. Uh, and it may be because they don't want to line up with, if, if they're older, they remember anti-Iranian feeling from the 70s, or they don't want to line up with Trump, who is really hostile to Iran and so forth. And so there, there are a lot of cultural ways this could play out that we have to be careful of. You, know, you can think about divisions and hostility between local communities. You know, when you learn that the next town over has a, an infection, does it become, oh, that kind of town that's always been dirty. It's always right. been unclean. They've always been stupid. Uh, yep. Does it exacerbate things like that? So that's that's one one thing that I'm, I'm watching for. In terms of our psychology, too, there was a really, really sad story in Italy just before they announced the full quarantine where the... Uh, country decided to greatly reduce visits to prisons, which makes sense medically, just to reduce the kind of contact. Prisoners in one prison rioted, burned the place, killed some people. And you can see why to be deprived of human contact like that would be would be cruel. Mm-hmm. Um, so you wonder how often we'll revolt against that. The, the, the idiots I mentioned before are kind of a small example of that kind of revolt. I mean, that mm-hmm. can really gall at us. Do, do we become more more isolated and lonely, as, as you noted earlier? Do we yeah. uh, become more, you know, the Twilight Zone, the, the pilot episode they shot is this heartbreaking little piece about a test pilot who goes up and, and comes back down and everybody on Earth is gone. Mm-hmm. And it drives him insane. Mm-hmm. That's the whole plot. It's, uh, it's, a, it's an achingly precise little story. And you wonder to what extent do we, do we go kind of bonkers and, and think about how it applies in other ways as well. Uh, what happens to uh, sexuality? You know, let's say hookup culture or using yep. Grindr or Tinder. Does that start to go away or does that become extra thrilling, like bareback sex in the age of AIDS? Right. Uh, I mean, and on top of this, I, I mentioned the CDC having problems and fumbling tests. Disease outbreaks can really be corrosive to social institutions. As, as faith in them begins to drop. So, I mean, do people treat CDC stats with a grain of salt? They might want to. Does that, that's, you know, that's the official government leader for how we repel diseases. What yeah. does that do? Right. Uh, do, you know, just today, Governor Cuomo in New York State called the National Guard to arrange for a containment zone around the town of New Rochelle, which has mm. a big outbreak. What happens to uh, the military, for example, you know, do we see them as the yep. enforcer of dumb policies? And then go back to demographics, which you know I'm obsessed with. America, like every developed nation, is aging rapidly, and the very aged are the main victims of this disease. Yes. How does that? How does that change us? Do we? Do we get a kind of ageist belief that well, good, they've served their, they've had their time, they don't matter as much. Right. Uh, the uh, Secretary General, the World Health Organization 
alluded to this in a talk uh, a couple of days ago where he said, you know, we can't, we have to treat the very elderly as human beings like the rest of us. We can't just say, oh, well, they don't matter as much. Mm -hmm. um, what happens to societies that venerate uh, the elderly, you know, traditional mm -hmm. societies, Confucian societies? It's, it's, it'd be very interesting to see how, how that plays out as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. I think we're at about time for today. I'd love to keep a line open because I, I have a feeling this isn't the last time we're going to be looking at this type, this broader set of trends around the COVID-19 coronavirus uh, and its impact to education, to our lives, to our culture. As we're wrapping up, Ryan, any uh, final thoughts? Any any rays of hope? We've gotten dystopian. You know, spring is coming. You know, hey, maybe spring is good. I don't know. Like any any closing thoughts uh, from you? You know, they don't have to be positive. I was I just hoping. Th there are some positive ones. I mean, one is that some businesses will do better. I mean, this is great news for Amazon. This is mm -hmm. great news for Apple and Netflix. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is also for the whole enterprise of teaching online. This is a big mm -hmm. shot in the arm as we migrate even more to that. I, I think one of the real, one of the real uh, positive strengths of this is while we have an impulse to turtle down, we have an impulse to hunker down and uh, draw up you know, walls around ourselves, to protect ourselves from infection. We now have the technologies that can, if you will, break those walls and cross those barriers. So I, I think we have a possibility of a really collaborative disease experience. And, and through collaboration, through digital technology, we can learn a lot more. I mean, the, the spreadsheet I set up, yeah. I started off, I populated it, and I'm working on it, but it's the work of many, many hands. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's much better as a result. It's much richer, much deeper, much more vibrant, more, more useful. I think that kind of, that kind of uh, collaboration across these different barriers will go on. And on top of that, humans are creative creatures. Uh, we will be telling stories. We've already made lots of memes. We've made terrible jokes, but I, I think we'll be creative in our response, both scientifically and figure out how to beat this thing, but also as, as species. Let me ask you, what's, what's your favorite replacement for the handshake now? I like the namaste bow. Mm. Feels like a safe one, you know? It is safe, it is safe. Have you seen the uh, foot touch? I have. I like that one too, but I mean, like there's a little old school to the, you know, no, hands I, I folded think, with the bow. Yeah. Well, see, think think about that. I mean, we're we're breaking it up. We're we're trying out different things, and people find some playfulness in this. Yes. So, and then maybe, as you mentioned, the outdoors. Maybe we will value the the outdoors more. And again, when it comes back to old folks, maybe we will value them more highly. Mm. And maybe this will be a blow against ageism. Mm. Lots of possible silver linings in a pretty thick dark cloud. Wonderful stuff from Brian Alexander. You can track him, brianalexander.org. That's where his blog is, where all of this is curated. It's becoming a real nerve center for folks who are trying to understand the coronavirus and its impact, particularly to higher education. Brian's also, as you can see, just a really interesting thinker who's got a wealth of experience trying to anticipate where the world is heading. Also a wealth of experience in science fiction and other things. Brian, thanks again for joining us on Trending in Education. My pleasure, Mike. An absolute delight to talk with you. And uh, please, in the meantime, stay safe yourself and let's keep talking.